Hello world, welcome to the Political Worldview Podcast, January 16th, 2019. Wow, that feels strange. Happy New Year, everybody. Um, The Revisiting Blair's Blunders edition. Uh, I'm Adam Quince, Senior Lecturer in International Politics at the Political Science and International Studies Department of the University of Birmingham in England. And I'm joined today by a first-time guest and somewhat new colleague, uh, Patrick Porter, a Professor of International Security and Strategy. When did you start again, Patrick? I've I've lost Uh, my thread. Good morning. I started in May last year yeah so i'm very new yeah and you know and in academic um places time moves on a, at a more stately some would say glacial pace in administrative matters Indeed. so may is basically yesterday yeah. uh, by, by the standards of <laughs> decisions and change in, in these parts we're glad to have you with us thank both you. in birmingham and also on the podcast thank, thank you, you for, for being here um so today uh, we're going to be taking some time out from the thrum of current events and crises uh, to revisit some recent history specifically the u.s uk invasion and occupation of iraq uh, starting in 2003, and more specifically still, uh, the British subplot within that story. Um, That explains our guest, because uh, aside from being uh, a charming and articulate interlocutor, uh, Patrick has just published a book on that subject. Uh, It's with Oxford University Press, and it's called Blunder, Britain's War in Iraq. Uh, So I don't think you've buried the lead there uh, in terms of uh, the angle that you take with regard to the wisdom of that decision. Um, It also has a picture of Tony Blair's face on the front of it, looking old and sad and staring into the middle distance. In his defense, he's at a funeral, I think, uh, in that picture or some kind of memorial service. Uh, But that gives us an indication of where you focus. Uh, which is on Britain's prime minister uh, at the time. So for the benefit of our younger listeners, um, because I have to regularly remind myself that I am uh, I'm, uh, a little old now and things that, that seem like yesterday's events to me can be more distant to others, let's uh, state some basic facts at the outset. In 2003, the United States, under the administration at that time of George W. Bush, led a massive military operation to overthrow by force the Iraqi dictator to Saddam Hussein, who was a long-standing enemy, not just of his administration, but of uh, of a series of administrations in the United States beforehand. Um, That was very controversial at the time. Uh, The United Nations Security Council refused to endorse it, and many countries, including European countries, usually aligned with the United States, uh, opposed it. But the UK under Tony Blair was a firm supporter, and not just verbally, uh, it deployed its own armed forces to join the invasion and occupation. Um, The official reason offered to justify the invasion was that Saddam Hussein was pursuing weapons of mass destruction. Indeed, these events did a lot to popularize uh, that phrase in in the mass consciousness, by which they meant chemical and and nuclear weapons, which had been prohibited by previous UN resolutions. Uh, Also in the air was the idea that overthrowing him and quote-unquote liberating Iraq, I'm doing doing air quotes with my fingers, as we speak, uh, could trigger a wave of reform in the Middle East that would redound to the benefit of the West. Um, And it's safe to say that politics in uh, all three of those places, Iraq, the United States, and the UK, has never been quite the same since. So, Patrick, um, with the table table laid there, um, you decided that it was worth your time uh, to do a really deep dive into one particular part of this, which was the decisions made by um, one of Britain's longest serving um, and at one time, it might have been said, most successful uh, Prime Minister's Tony Blair uh, prime, to, uh, to to join this military expedition. 
Why did you decide to start this project? Well, I actually decided to write it while I was on honeymoon. I started writing on honeymoon, which was controversial at the time as well. Um, but I was... During which phase of the proceedings did you uh, first take up your pen? <laughs> well, I, I had two fears. that People, because of Brexit, would just forget about Iraq, that Iraq would be consigned to history. And at the same time that others would remember Iraq in a very frivolous or trivial way, where they would just write it off as a, a big incompetent error by one man. And actually, this book, one of its arguments is that this was Britain's war, not just Blair's war, and it's driven by a set of ideas that are actually still with us. And that front cover that you mentioned does include Blair looking as tech-faced, but around him as well, there's a whole lot of uh, grandees and royals who are talking and chattering with one another while he's staring straight ahead. And in that sense, there's an ambivalence here that Blair, while I think is misguided on the issue, at least is facing the music. Mm. And the rest of us would like it all to just go away, hence the book. Right. So what would you say your central thesis is here? Uh, and perhaps like, while you're outlining that, you can counterpoint it with whoever it is that you think you're disagreeing with. Sure. My central thesis is that it's a war driven by three bad ideas, and those ideas are still very live today, uh, first of which is that uh, we are dangerously threatened by undeterrable fanatical rogue states, the notion of the rogue state, uh, secondly, that the path to security is to break and remake states. And thirdly, that Britain can purchase influence in Washington to guide its wars uh, through what Tony Blair called the blood price by paying sacrifices up front. Britain can strengthen its special relationship. And that these concepts uh, took hold precisely because they weren't just one person's. Tony Blair is a driving force, but... He was, in a sense, pushing at an open door. And there is a much wider complicity in society, in parliament, in the press, amongst intellectuals. And as well, there are a lot of Iraqi exiles who helped encourage the idea. And this is to contrast against different arguments about why the war happened. Uh, so there is the, the oil thesis. This is a lunge for oil, a crude lunge, dressed up with the language of rhetoric or that this is the work of a poodle, that is, Britain goes to war because it's bullied or coerced by the United States, uh, or that this is the product of just one person and his obsessions. And what I try and do is actually put big ideas back at the centre of the story, which weren't just rhetoric, which were genuinely and sincerely held, and which were dangerous and revolutionary, and that, that ultimately the Iraq war had an intellectual foundation that is uh, proving much more long-lasting. Yeah, because I mean, with Tony Blair, there's, um, there's always been a bit of a question mark over how self-starting he was in thinking about all of this. Because yeah. if we look at the longer trajectory of his approach to foreign policy, you can kind of see Iraq as the, the culmination on slightly grander scale of yep. something that he was working up to over a period of years. You know, he yep. he didn't really have super strong views on foreign policy when he came into office, but he made a series of decisions once he was there in Kosovo, yep. in Sierra Leone, um, in one or two other instances, to deploy British military force, um, sometimes uh, alone, sometimes uh, uh, with allies, including the United States, alongside, in service of a kind of 
broad liberal objectives, yeah. I guess we might we might say. Like some bad government is killing some people or repressing some people or um, there is a, a, an ongoing conflict that's going to end badly for a group of sympathetic victims if nothing is done. Force is deployed. Yeah. It calms the situation down, um, at least uh, uh, sufficiently for victory to be declared. And Tony Blair is able, re- after the fact, to represent himself as having made a kind of courageous moral decision to use force in service of good. And uh, uh, you know, although one might expect a left of center leader to be to have a lot of reservations about the use of force overseas, that ability to attach a moral narrative to it, like uh, allowed him to um, to come up with a version of overseas military interventionism that sat quite well with you know, metropolitan liberal um, ideals. And then Iraq is. You know, on a, on a big canvas, uh, you might say something a bit like that. The idea is that you go in, you topple the government, you put a better government in place. The Iraqis are all happy now, uh, and you know, uh, uh, a happy, free, productive, pro-Western society extends into the indefinite future. So there's the idea that it's kind of like a gambler who um, you know keeps winning and keeps increasing his bet as he goes along until one day he bets the deeds to his house uh, and realizes that roulette wheels don't always come up uh, red. And then there's another narrative that says that this was all something that basically started in, in the United States, that, yeah. that there was a, a kind of a long-running, unquenchable thirst uh, in the United States for doing in Saddam Hussein. And you know that was felt with varying strength uh, on different parts of the political spectrum. But George Bush's administration was staffed up with a real hardcore of Republican war hawks, many of whom had a long history uh, directly overlapping with America's um, military and diplomatic conflicts with Iraq, that they... Uh, were determined almost from day one to do something to resolve that situation as they saw it once and for all. Post 9-11, they had the mandate to do big, bold military things, so they seized the opportunity. And that Tony Blair basically got dragged along in the slipstream of a lot of that, that he he felt um, it was super important that the United States and the UK remain tight and allied at a time when uh, everybody else was, you know, looking at their shoes and uh, desperately trying not to uh, not to get involved in this thing if he put britain by america's side then that would make a a gesture of some kind that would stand the united the united kingdom in good stead in the long run because we had stood by by america mm-hmm. um, and that left to his own devices he probably wouldn't have done this thing but because america was doing it anyway and he kind of got pulled along. Where, where do you see the balance lying sure. between those things? Like on one, like one version of that, you can imagine Tony Blair being in the room, like saying, you know, uh, well, you know, you've probably <laughs> overstated the case a bit here, George. But if it's really important to you, you know, I guess we can go along. And there's another version of it where you can imagine him. Like, pulling just as hard in the same direction as, as, as the President of the United States and uh, uh, adding his own, uh, his own weight and voice to the, the strongest case for. He really believes it. Uh, if you read the private correspondence between him and his advisers, Blair and his advisors and Blair and Bush, there is very little doubt that he's, he's a firm believer. And he actually said that to a journalist once. He said, it's, it's even worse than you think. I believe in what we're doing here. And he says that privately to Bush as well. There's a real ideological conviction that 
the road to a safer world order is through Baghdad, and uh, not just because you're disarming a rogue state, but because you're actually catalyzing the transformation of a whole region. But to take the picture back a little bit, um, you're absolutely right that there is a growing belief in Washington and in London, to put it very crudely, that war works, mm. that war can work, both to secure your yourself and to liberate others and that actually values and interests are becoming one to use to draw from the bush doctrine that ever since uh, gulf war one kosovo uh the balkan wars uh, sierra leone east timor and then a really important catalyst is the apparent success in afghanistan in late 2001 the belief that whatever else can be argued about that this is doable and the main problem is to convince others and to legitimize it it's one of the great uh, difficulties of of this subject that there's very little uh, moment you can pinpoint where they're actually consciously debating whether or not to do it. They've decided they want to do it. It's working out how they can facilitate it. Mm. So the, the most important question of all, whether to strike Iraq, is hardly asked. It's how you do it, when you do it, under what auspices, if you can get the stars to align. But it's also true more broadly that there were people in Britain in the Foreign Office, in the in the Ministry of Defence, some of whom were more sceptical or more unsure, but who nevertheless believed, to quote one civil servant, that if America was going to commit this blunder, it's very important that Britain be there alongside them to constrain them. And this takes us back to an older idea in British diplomacy from all the way back to Harold Macmillan, that it's Britain's post-war role to tutor the superpower in how to be a world power like mm-hmm. Britain. The Britain had lost its imperial sinew, but it kept its imperial knowledge and to actually guide the United States. The first reaction after 9-11, and 9-11 is a very important part of the picture, is for a lot of British officials to be quite scared of America and worried that they're going to go off the rails and not just start doing reckless things, but to jettison themselves from the international system. And one of Blair's arguments is that if you want to keep America constrained multilateralist part of our institutions, then you shouldn't isolate it. You should try and guide it. But there was very real ideological impetus amongst a lot of centres of decision and opinion, much more than people like to remember. And I think it's too comfortable to remember this as, well, the Americans were going to do it anyway. We just wanted to tame them. There was actually a level of agreement with mm. Washington. And on that last point, on America itself, there was also a lot of liberal opinion that was in favour of this. A mm. friend of mine, Mike Mazar, is writing the American history of the American decision to go in. He says that the Pentagon, Pentagon official told him they were getting just as much pressure and agitation from the Washington Post and the New York Times as they were from the neocons. Yeah, well, because it... I mean, Paul Wolfowitz, the, the you know... Deputy Secretary of Defense at the time, arch neoconservative, uh, never saw a dictatorship he didn't want to invade and, uh, and replace with a model democracy. Um, he famously said in an interview prior to the invasion of Iraq that the weapons of mass destruction argument was just the one on which mm. everybody could agree, which was reported in some circles as though it were a gaffe, but I don't yeah. think he ran away from it or was embarrassed by it. Uh, and in many ways, it was, you know, a very fair and accurate characterization of the situation because he wasn't saying 
and we all know it's nonsense. He was yeah. just saying we all think that there is a, an, a, a legitimate um, strategic case and a legitimate legal case to be made on the grounds of weapons of mass destruction. And some of us also yeah. believe that toppling uh, dictatorships and replacing them with model democratic governments is like a really good idea and other people are less enthused by that. But if we all if we all at least can agree on this baseline reason and we think that baseline reason is sufficient, then everyone can have whatever other subsidiary justifications in mind that they that they like. Right. So there's, there's two things there. there. There was, as you say, a, a core rationale that was very often believed that there was a WMD problem, that the problem was, and it's very specifically, not so much that this rogue state would develop the arsenal and use it directly, but that it would transfer capabilities to a terrorist network. So there's a coming together in the in the threat picture of 9-11 style terrorist, mm-hmm. mass casualty complex terrorist attacks with the ultimate weapon. This is the famous axis of evil argument, where the, right. the, the axis of evil, lest, uh, uh, where we, again, we leave our younger listeners behind, right. was a famous phrase used yeah. by, by President Bush in one of his addresses to Congress. Uh, and the axis that he was talking about was essentially that rogue states yeah. would find an alliance of convenience with terrorist groups yeah. uh, that might lead to an even larger scale terrorist attack than 9-11 right. using weapons of mass right. destruction. Absolutely. And that, that is that is widely believed. Uh, and while they uh, privately think of it more of as a, that as more of a medium-term problem in their public advocacy, it becomes much more imminent, much more urgent in the way they try and mobilise opinion for war. And the line between a preventive attack and a preemptive attack becomes blurred. In other words, a distant but real threat versus mm. an imminent one. Uh, and there is a real, there is a palpable fear after nine eleven. Not just that another, even worse thing could happen, but they could be held responsible for allowing it to happen. Mm-hmm. So there is a, a predisposition towards pre, what's known as precautionary war, <laughs> as though a preventive war can be a precautionary act. But there is also a whole lot of other rationales for invading Iraq that swirl around this. Uh, and Paul Wolfowitz, uh, he did say that was the one thing they could agree on because he was right. And actually, he. He co-authored a very important document that hasn't been talked about enough uh, with a a group of other intellectuals, journalists, strategic thinkers known as the Delta of Terrorism, uh, a document that was then shown to Bush, Cheney and others, which argued that that there was a need to uh, cure the malignancy of the Middle East, that 9-11 had happened because of the defects of the Arab Islamic world, Mm -hmm. that Afghanistan wasn't the centre of the problem it was the heart of the Arab Islamic world and that the, the Al-Qaeda's atrocious strike was symptomatic of that world, that cauldron of social ruin, corruption, re- religious extremism, fanaticism, dictatorship, mm-hmm. and that somehow, and they didn't really spe- sort of specify this causally very well, by removing Saddam Hussein, who was the, who was the most acceptable uh, target that you can then somehow create this domino wave of benign things, democratic capitalist reform at the heart of the Middle East. WMD is part of that, but there is actually a much deeper and more ambitious crusade here to actually alter a whole region as a way Mm. to security. Uh, And in that sense, I call it a blunder because the set of miscalculations involved in that is much, much worse than a crime. Yeah. So, I mean, you you have... 
I, I come at this mostly from the American side, uh, as, as you would imagine, given my expertise. But I feel like you have that group of people who've been building up over a period of decades this belief system that 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 it is perfectly possible for the United States to topple governments, invite the, the newly liberated peoples of those countries to then form a, a new democratic regime, and that that will result in a, a market uptick in the yeah. peace, prosperity, and pro-American disposition of those countries, uh, which, which you know, obviously is a good thing if you're a U.S. strategy maker. So that's a kind of, um, you know, utopian thinking about the possibility of refashioning international order. Then there was another group of people who were a bit more, I suppose you might say, vulgar or narrow in their um, in their aspirations, who post 9-11, having already been big believers in the importance of military strength and dominance and uh, America's capacity to convince everyone it had those. Uh, and I'm thinking here of people like Donald Rumsfeld yeah. and, and Dick Cheney, who just thought that we need to respond to something like this with a big, bold show of yeah. force. And you get the sense with them um, that they're frustrated that Afghanistan has just not been sufficient yeah. to deliver. There's that famous uh, uh, complaint that Donald Rumsfeld has during the military campaign that they're running out of targets because there isn't enough um, like uh, stuff in Afghanistan that's worth throwing an expensive missile at it. Uh, I think he, he makes a crack at one point about them like bombing tents with cruise missiles and that this is this is ridiculous. So like there's a feeling that they want to do something that's uh, militarily a bigger deal simply to demonstrate that they can do it. And they've got this Saddam Hussein guy who's been tweaking their tail for the best part of 15 years uh, after the first uh, the first Gulf War. And, you know, he's a bad guy. Uh, he's been thumbing his nose at American hegemony for uh, for uh, way too long. And this is a good opportunity, given the latitude the American government now has to act to, yeah. to slap him down. But when both of those constituencies come together yeah, and say, they, they say, let's let's do this thing. Uh, they find that there is like this other crucial constituency of people who have no particular brief to carry for Saddam Hussein, but who are like, ah, I, I don't know, that sounds like that sounds like a really um, distastefully unilateralist mm. um, venture that you're describing there, potentially very damaging to a lot of things that we consider valuable, like international institutions and international law and international order. Uh, so, like much as we might love to see Saddam Hussein gone, we don't like think that. That we can stand up in public and say that, like, we think that doing it for those reasons is okay, and that's where I feel like the WMD thing kind of yeah. comes in because because there is this legal case that can be built that Saddam Hussein has been put on notice by the United Nations Security Council that he has to get rid of these programs, and if he hasn't gotten rid of them, then you know it ought to be the case that someone does something about that and you can characterize doing something about that as not violating international law but upholding it. So Blair is kind of a, a key figure in this because he is operating in a 
a different political context where there's almost no constituency for like a big, bold show of force or a, a wild scheme to democratize the Middle East. But you might be able to get a constituency behind enforcing international law um, in, in support of our allies. So he really, if he's going to go along with this, he really, really pushes the point that they need to justify it in those terms. Would you agree with that, 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 the, that the importance and prominence of the weapons of mass destruction are argument in the case for invading Iraq is um, is quite bound up with Tony Blair's key role in um, in some of the, the, the case making, uh, because he wouldn't have been able to go along with some of the other justifications. I'm not sure. I mean, that, that is certainly one uh, coherent rationale for what happens. I think that there, there, there actually is more idealism on the British side than is often remembered. And that one of the problems is the embarrassment, the political embarrassment of remembering these things. And I think one of the reasons people despise Tony Blair is he reminds them they used to agree with him. Uh, that it's much easier to despise him than to recall a, time, a moment of rough agreement. That notwithstanding the huge anti-war protests, there were majorities in opinion polls. There was a, a lot of um, support more broadly, and not just on the WMD issue. Although that was, you're right, that was absolutely important in terms of legitimacy and in, in terms of imminent threat. And, and that, when he gave his speech in Parliament yeah. to justify the decision, it was like WMD was. He basically, as I recall that speech at least, he goes through all the different reasons and says, and these are good reasons, but they're not the reasons that I'm giving you today why we need to do it. The reason we need to do it is the weapons of mass destruction because that's the legal case. So he he, make, he does both. He, he makes the forensic and legal case, but he also talks about the importance of the world order that we're going into and for Britain to be draw America into that world order. And he, he does make the case that... Uh, that there is a liberation here to be had, and there is, and he does make the case that this is about reordering a region. And in fact, after nine eleven, he says to the Labor Party conference, "Let us reorder the world." There is a there is a world ordering ambition argument here, and a lot of the argument in the Parliament is not just about WMD; it's about the need to make real change, and with a particular British preoccupation with the Arab Israeli dispute and the question of Palestine, with Iran sadly neglected in a lot of the discussion. There's an there is a kind of Arabist bias, I think, in a lot of the British discussion about. Uh, what this means for the wider region, and Tehran's often left out of the imagination. Uh, I would just, on the other question about the balance of opinion in Washington, you're absolutely right, there was a coalition of opinion, as there is for all wars, and there was a hardline, uh, more vengeful, more narrow faction as well. But they didn't get the war they wanted. The people who got the war they wanted were the Paul Wolfowitzes, the George Bush, President George Bush, and uh, a lot of the Democrat war hawks who actually... Um, wanted there not just to be an overthrow, but to be a reordering of Iraq with a fundamental purge of the of the order. So a, a narrow, brutal, realist war would have preferred a minimal institutional impact, remove the dictator, install another one who's pro-American, don't get yourself tied down, don't stay around to accept all the costs of occupation, and then certainly don't surge when things start going badly. On all three grounds, the mm. idealistic war hawks get their way. The war they actually get all the kind of the observables of what that kind of war would look like tilt in that direction. The the fact that Iraq is is systematically reordered economically by a regent, by Paul Bremer III. Mm-hmm. Um, the, there is a very large debate within the administration in 2006-07 about whether it's worth staying around and trying to re- rescue the war. And there is a pushback from some of the old realists saying, look, this is no longer worth it, and they lose. Mm-hmm. So I think the balance still tips in favour of this of this ambition, even when the costs start looking very high. Uh, you are right, though, that WMD is what gives this a sense of um, immediate, tangible urgency. So I don't want to sort of downplay that. 
but and legality and legality and because you know you can't, you can't yeah. uh, you know I'm not an expert in international yeah. law but I'm pretty sure that the argument that says this country's government is bad and if we give it a better one the world be a better place is not a is not a solid legal argument for a military so invasion. the argument then becomes on the side of the pro-war argument that what we are doing is rescuing the credibility of the United Nations, which has seen its will and its and its writs and its uh, resolutions systematically violated by this dictator who's 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 laughing at us, and that, in other words, it becomes an argument between two different kinds of internationalism. One of which says we've got to hold the unity of the United Nations through you know through uh, deferring to international law. The other side mm. that says no, we've got to hold the credibility of the United Nations, even if that means technically mm. violating the law. Um, we've got to uphold its its position because it's being defied by this rogue state. And mm. what makes that more difficult in March 2003 is that Britain is already ratcheting up its military presence in the Gulf to an unsustainable level, and there's a fear of backing down. Yeah. So, I mean, yes, yeah, so you have a situation where the, the UN Security Council has said at one point, Iraq, you absolutely need to do X, Y, and Z, or else... And then we're in the or else space and the UN Security Council doesn't really want to do anything. So the question is, do you show greater reverence for the importance of upholding international law by doing what the UN Security Council says now or by, uh, you know, enforcing what it previously had agreed it would do. It's a little, a little bit of a flavor of the Brexit referendum in some ways. You like you know, right, like you've got you've got a uh, you've got a previously stated position, uh, are you obliged to, you know, see that through come yeah. what may or is an ongoing consultation with the body that produced that decision yes. um, uh, worthwhile? So I want to ask um I guess a, a question that goes to the heart of this in some ways, because the case was to be made in terms of weapons of mass destruction, that created uh, you know, a, a great imperative within American politics to some degree, although I think they were a little more casual about it, within British politics to an enormous degree to substantiate the argument that this weapons of mass destruction threat like was was real and existed, which leads to the mm-hmm. um, the deployment of you know government resources to find yeah. all the evidence they possibly can to make the case that not only do these weapons of mass destruction programs exist, but that they represent a a material breach of the UN Security Council resolutions and also a grave threat to um, to our security, which notoriously leads to uh, cobbling together um, this dossier uh, for public consumption that, uh, that, that explains all the evidence. And that contains notoriously this uh, 45-minute warning saying that's how long it will take Iraq to deploy uh, weapons of mass destruction while deliberately being uh, obfuscating about exactly what kinds of weapons of mass destruction. It subsequently turns out that's a reference to like battlefield things that we have no meaningful uh, consequence at all for the United Kingdom uh, itself in any direct way. There's large amounts of uh, material that seem to have been copied and pasted from uh, a doctoral thesis somewhere, if I recall correctly. Um, so I think that's that project, that mm. effort to mm. um, sell the case in a kind of 
retrofitting the evidence, cherry picking sort of way, I think is what what led a lot of people during and even more so after the fact to hang the charge around Tony Blair's yeah. neck that he's a liar, yeah. that he's not just someone who um, had a, a big, bold plan that he tried and that it didn't work out and that that's sad, but, you know, yeah. fair play. In politics, you get to do your thing if you're elected and then if it does, goes badly, you get to, you know, um, eat the bitter harvest, but that's that's the game. It, it, it's it's mm. that he won the support to do what he wanted to do by knowingly and deliberately misrepresenting mm. the evidence and that if... If he had laid out the honest yep. facts and probabilities as he, of all people with access to all the sources that he had access to, should have known them, then there's no way that he would have been able to pull off the, the politics. So do you think that that charge is fair? That I'm not going to necessarily ask you to say if you think Tony Blair is a liar, although you're welcome to answer that, um, that specific charge if you like. But do you think it's fair to say that Tony Blair misrepresented um, the evidence because he thought that the outcome he wanted was sufficiently desirable to justify that. Well, I, I've actually go along with the Chilcot Inquiry report, which which accuses him and the government, uh, or at least the inner circle, of placing undue weight on ambiguous evidence. It's not that they knowingly, secretly believed in that there actually there was no weapons of mass destruction program Part of the problem is they really do believe that's a problem, and even intelligence sceptics still think that somewhere in there uh, there is a weapons of mass destruction program, and the problem is Saddam Hussein's concealment. It's just that it's a question of evidential weight, right? not a question of saying something you know not to be true. Uh, but I get a little sceptical because it was very easy for the government to persuade people with this dodgy dossier. I mean, the fact is there were alternative readings, interpretations in the public domain people have could, have could have accessed as well. On the eve of the war, the IAEA and the UN Weapons Inspection uh, leader both issued reports uh, giving a much more sceptical view of the extent of the WMD program, reporting incre increasing Iraqi cooperation, suggesting they needed more time, um, far less apocalyptic uh, account of, of the progress or the status of that program than mm. other than the government's case. And people... A lot of people chose to ignore that and to, and to prefer the government's case. So they made an ideological choice. And secondly, the, the allegation that Blair lied the country into war reduces the whole question to one of one's analysis or evaluation of an intelligence dossier. But actually, when people in Parliament voted for war and when newspapers supported them, when intellectuals supported them, when Iraqi exiles supported them, when a lot of people quietly supported them, they weren't just exercising a judgment about intelligence. They were making a much more fundamental judgment that war would work. Mm. And that's the part that often gets left out of that picture. It's much more politically attractive to reduce the whole issue to one of Blair hoodwinking and charming people into doing something they otherwise might not have done because it, they then avoid the problem that they made a fundamental political miscalculation themselves. Gordon Brown himself has actually recently taken part in this rewriting of history where he's just announced uh, not too long ago that he, after all, would have voted against the war if only he had been aware of one intelligence report that was lurking around the bowels of the Pentagon, which has only just been released, where one analyst 
indicated that he thought the evidence was actually lacking. But then if you go and read that report, which I've done, the same analyst also says that Saddam Hussein probably has a weapon, an active weapons of mass destruction program. It's just that his concealment makes it hard to conclude it positively beyond conjecture. So, but even so, even that report suggested there was a problem, and also that the issue here is not one of whether you've read that report or not. The issue the issue is one of the predisposition of the customer. The fact is, people were eager to consume this intelligence because they wanted to believe it, mm-hmm. and there was a whole lot of briefings given. I mean, one of the big believers was Richard Dearlove, who believed that this campaign could actually transform the Middle East. And he was the head of the intelligence service, MI six. Yeah, but he was eagerly. Um, briefing Brown and others that this this was this could work and was doable, so I think it's very doubtful whether you know one Gordon Brown was one document away from crossing the floor. Yes, and there is a real so there's a very there is a failure is an orphan quality about this. There really which, is, which is to say that if if everything in the prelude to the invasion of Iraq remained exactly the same. Yeah. But the outcome of the invasion of Iraq had not even been defined the weapons of mass destruction. Right. Let's suppose that 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 they're still not there mm. in this alternative reality. Right. But really the well. government is toppled. It's replaced by like so there's a constitutional convention. Yeah. The Iraqis are all super into it. They come together and write yeah. a new constitution, and Iraq is now like a fully functional uh, government with a free market economy yeah. um, and uh, a really pro-Western foreign policy. Um, there is quite a high likelihood that we would uh, consider this all to be, if not totally fine, then at least you know, uh, uh, acceptable uh, by the standards of, you know, getting your hands dirty to achieve an objective in foreign policy. Like we wouldn't, at the moment, Iraq stands as this iconic symbol of the betrayal of public trust, so grave that our democracy for a generation at least can never be the same again. Yet one can imagine the same level of dishonesty, whatever one thinks that level to be, being the same, but the results being a bit better and uh, uh, yeah. that feeling being very different. So is the lesson that if you're going to if you're going to skew the evidence to get your way because you think the ends justify the means, then you really better be right that whatever you're going to do is going to end well, because that's really what determines whether or not. Um, yes, things hit the fan. So, in other words, it's a question of, the, of a deeper judgment about about the evaluation of, of what war will do and whether it's worth it and whether it has the costs will be acceptable. Um, one of the problems is that I think a lot of people, on, particularly on the hawkish side of the argument, want to so-called, so to speak, quarantine this case as a special case where one bad person lied us into war, but actually what we need to do really is to focus on how to do regime change better next time. And there is a very very strong appetite to marginalise Iraq and to talk up Syria as the great alternative case where so-called failure to intervene, although I think we actually did intervene quite heavily in Syria, um, is is the great lesson. And to return to a default setting of um, more technically astute but still righteous war-making. And there is a battle here about what the memory of Iraq is for. Um, do we want to remember it as a botched execution by one person or do we want to remember it as a fundamental uh, wake-up call to the limits of power and and what our power is for and what war can do? I do th- I'm do. i not a pacifist. I think war is pretty good for defence and deterrence of the means, those means of, of capability. But beyond that, it's very difficult indeed. And we've held on to this idea that actually 
from, there is a kind of managerial and almost colonial reading of Iraq that Iraq demonstrates, if anything, that in order to do it properly next time, you've got to administer people better into liberal democracy. Mm. And which I think just ignores the wildly difficult politics of doing something like this. And again and again and again, we've underestimated resistance. And we did that with Libya. And by not paying very much close attention to the people we were supporting, um, we there is a kind of must-go-ism in London that the solution to a problem is to demand that a government must go. Mm -hmm. uh, so this pathology is with us. And you can see the politics of, therefore, it's so attractive to just dismiss Iraq as Blair's screw-up. And as we keep on going down the road of liberal crusade after liberal crusade. Yeah, I, I mean, I want to talk a little bit about the consequences, the long-term consequences. We've, we've sort of alluded to it um, in my um, statement of that last question, which is to say it is in the, the folk narrative of how we got to our current situation, where you have a populist surge in the United Kingdom of... Like nationalism and anti-establishment fury. Uh, you have something that's not quite identical, but you know that, that that has many similar characteristics in the United States. A sort of reactionary backlash against the establishment, a turn towards uh, a much more boldly nationalistic uh, foreign policy in the form of Donald Trump's America First. That isn't necessarily reluctant to throw one's weight about in the world, but that is certainly disinclined to dress that up as a, um, a moral uh, crusade uh, or an exercise in, in order building. Do The folk narrative says that we came to this situation because a previously trusted establishment class of people revealed themselves to be dishonest and to be incompetent because they because because of this Iraq thing and that that shattered the trust of the public in a way that cannot be put back together again at least in the foreseeable future do you think that that's true that Iraq is responsible in that way or to that degree? Or do you think that that's overstating its its, its significance? Because, I mean, there's lots of other things that have happened, you yeah. know, that strike me. Yeah. Like, you know, the Vietnam War, which is not yeah. that long ago, doesn't strike me as like a textbook study in honesty or success. Um, there are other, like, Indeed. arguably more uh, uh, directly important things from the point of view of the, the domestic population, like the financial crisis, that, that, that one might reasonably argue are far more consequential uh, when it comes to you know, a loss of confidence in, in establishment and authority in these countries. Do you think it's right to hang as much on the Iraq war as people do? I'm, I'm sort of torn about that in terms of the long-term domestic political effects. I, want, I don't want to go as far as some people like, um, I think, Richard Oborn, who argues that before Iraq... You know, Britain was almost a green and pleasant land where people trusted the intelligence services and trusted the government and there was no, you know, Guildford 4 and Birmingham 6 and all lots of other things. I think you, we can overstate Iraq as a hinge moment in that sense. But I do think that in conjunction with some other notable disasters, like, as you say, the global financial crisis, helped to create a long-term erosion of credibility of the old sort of political order at home. Not in a direct way. It's not as though all the Trump voters and all the and all the dissidents in Britain um, are, are 
believe in restraint and um, not exercising military power. But I think more indirectly, the loss of the the loss of patience in a familiar set of political figures, and where you look everywhere, there's an economic disaster or a military disaster. We'll try something else, thanks. Even if that thing that comes along, right, Trump is very militaristic and economically extravagant as well. Mm. So it's not necessarily a logical leap from Iraq war disaster to Trump, but there may be an indirect chain of, of, of a breakdown in patience and trust. I think it's a very important part of the civil war than the Labour Party in Britain that Iraq is much more directly linked to a general indictment of the so-called Blairites. Right? Right. The Blairites are remembered as this group of, of, lab- of traitors within the Labour left movement who uh, were sort of in the pay of Murdoch and who carried out these, these disasters and, the, and that Iraq is almost used as an ace in the whole argument, often by people who don't even know very much about it. Uh, and I think so in that sense, Corbynism owes some of its energy to discontent over the Iraq disaster. It's also important to look at chronology. I don't think this was... If you actually look at, you know, American forces are out by 2011, British forces are out much earlier, it takes quite a while for Iraq to truly generate political effects at home, right? Blair government, after all, was re-elected in 2005. I think it's the rise of the Islamic State. It's that... It's like after World War I that all the great bitter memoirs and and famous anti-war poetry doesn't really start getting going and being big until 1929 after the stock market collapses. Mm. It's that post-disaster disaster which is linked to the original decisions, the rise of those black flags and the coming of this Islamist movement that looks even that's regarded by al-Qaeda as being overzealous, as seeing the ultimate indictment of what's mm. happened in this great military misadventure. Right, because it's one thing yeah. to... It's one thing to undertake significant cost and sacrifice in order to achieve uh, a worthy objective. It's another thing to uh, make a reasonable bet on a plausible outcome and have it not quite work out, but to have the status quo ante essentially uh, returned to. But to do something that's big and risky and costly and that demands quite a bit of sacrifice and and suffering and political rancor and to have it actively make things worse that that's really um where the where the trouble starts to find for people who who feel that they have suffered a lot to find that they suffered in service of something that was actually 180 degrees opposite to, to helping. That that yeah, really is where exactly. I suspect a Doing strength harm. of feeling escalates. Yes, and I think there's a level of national embarrassment and shame, which is not always articulated in those terms, but um, one, effect of, one political effect of Iraq, although it's hard to make it tangible, is that it, it brings shame on the country. And America probably would have invaded Iraq anyway. I don't think Britain had it, had had the wherewithal to stop it happening. Well, at but, one point, but, George Bush like basically told Tony Blair, didn't he? Look, yeah, if this is too difficult for you politically at home, yeah. then you know, yes, I, I I appreciate the offer, but don't feel bad; it's yeah. fine. And, so and Blair really, is like, no, no, it's not fine. Yes, it's Britain not fine. On the door. It, it can't be fine. Yeah. Uh, don't 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 talk that exactly. way, honey. Um, like yeah, that's like, why the political thing is exactly the wrong way around. Britain wants to steer America and actually eagerly knocking on the door to be part of it. When America, this unilateralist administration, is not particularly worried about having a great coalition. It prefers one, but if happy to go on. It would rather a sympathetic government stay in power in Britain. Uh, so that's that's absolutely true. But there is a level of shame, nevertheless, at complicity, and that. Uh, 
this does have long-term consequences. And then you have a series of other misadventures in the Middle East as well, which seem to kind of ram home the point that what, whatever it is we've been doing and whatever narrative we've been spinning about it does mm. not work. From Tripoli to Damascus to this, there's something going on here that just does not work. And it's, you know, um, people like us who are paid to sit around all day thinking about that are still arguing about it. Not everyone's got that time, but it just seems not to work. And the impulse then to try something else, I think, is very strong. Exit question. Yeah. Um, you articulated some core ideas at the heart of, of, of Blair's decision and the ideological case, I guess, for the war around rogue states, mm-hmm. uh, around the desire to break and remake states and around the uh, importance of preserving the transatlantic alliance come what may. How do you think the health of those ideological causes is today? Are they obliterated from all credibility? Are they uh, uh, in abeyance, but like a virus of some kind waiting to come back at some point? Uh, Are they hale and hearty uh, as ever in some quarters? What, What would you say the consequences for those ideas have been? Some people do say to me, why are you worried about this? Everyone agrees Iraq was a disaster. This, this, this is over now. We don't do this anymore. We just drone people from the sky and maybe do some cyber mischief, but we don't really, we're not into this. And I think, well, similar things were said in the late 1970s after Vietnam. It's in low water, but like you say, it's not gone. And if that means we're only 10 or 15 years away from the next adventure, then that's a problem. If we're going to do this again within our lifetimes, that's a problem. And I think... The evidence that we might do that is before us. The Trump administration itself, um, with the urging of its own officials and various hawks, is actively trying to precipitate a crisis with Iran. Um, Britain itself, in a more guarded way, but from the air, has been active in a number of regime change projects. Um, And the impulse is there, which is also upheld in large parts of government, that in order for Britain to be um, a great power, it has to be throwing its weight around globally and all the rhetoric of global Britain has pregnant within it this kind of thing again, that this is about great powerness. So I think all the ingredients are there ideologically. All we need is time and maybe not that much time either. And on that ominous note, uh, I think we've set the world to rights. Uh, Thank you very much, Patrick. And thank you all very much for listening. You can follow the Political Worldview podcast on Twitter at Poll Worldview, and please do. Please also subscribe to us on SoundCloud or iTunes uh, or or on uh, other platforms uh, and leave us a rating or a comment, uh, which we very much appreciate and which helps others discover the pod. Uh, you can like our show page on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash poll worldview, where you can get links to the episodes and other things. Um, recommend us, share us. I would appreciate it if you recommended us to, to somebody on social media. That's often how we get new listeners. Our participant today, uh, aside from myself, has been Patrick Porter. Patrick, where can people find you on social media if they're interested in your, uh, your output and thoughts? Oh, great. Well, yes, I'm on Twitter at, at PatPorter76. Uh, that's where you can find me. I think that's it.
Yeah, a modest profile. Yes, well, you know, there's no point having two, is there? Um, <laughs> I'm Adam Quinn, uh, Adam Quinn 161 on Facebook, uh, standing in front of the Capitol building. Uh, that's where I do most of my sharing, so I'd recommend you follow me there. Although if you are militant about using Twitter, I'm also at Adam James Quinn, where I am considerably less active. Our producer is Connor McKenna, and you've been listening to us from the Pulsus Department at the University of Birmingham in England. Thanks, as always, to the Pulsus Good Ideas Fund for their financial support. We very much appreciate it. We will be back soon for more episodes this uh, this 2019 we very much hope you will be too bye